You are listening to audio from the Mariner Campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Again, and welcome to church. Uh, last week, if you are here last week, you'll know that we began a, a brand new series. And the series is on the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest teaching that you will ever come across, taught by the smartest person in human history, Jesus Christ. Now, at the time, last week, I thought it was a great idea to just do a one-off introduction into the Sermon on the Mount, which I think it was. It was was, was good to introduce it. But then I realized it means I have to walk through two uh, Beatitudes today. And so all week long, I was like, what was I thinking? But uh, we can do this. We uh, We can dive into the first two parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Now... As we look at this, it may not be a deep dive, but if you want to go deeper in the Beatitudes, how could you do that? Well, yes, that's a good point. You could take my class on Tuesday nights, yes, at 7 o'clock. Is that correct? Yes, on Zoom or in person, yes. We are doing a deep, deep dive on, on, on Tuesday night on this. Uh, we're going to look at what are called the Beatitudes. And so, uh, to get ready, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. That would be great. That's what we're going to look at today. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, in honor of God's word. Let's stand together as I read this. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, will you speak to us, we pray. These are the greatest words ever written. You are the greatest person who's ever lived. And we pray that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um. Now, one of the things you may want to do, you may want to do, now you have to realize, I'm not good at this, um, but you may want to try memorizing your way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm good at remembering lyrics by Rush and Led Zeppelin and some of those things. I'm really good at that. I'm, I'm good at remembering weird stats from hockey from 30 years ago. 
But I'm trying to memorize scripture. And so I have actually memorized the first, uh, what we just read. And I was a little too nervous to actually try it because I'm, I've just memorized it. But um, yeah, just try to make your way through that. And try to memorize it and see what it does to your heart. Uh, I think that's it's a practice. In the age of Google, uh, memorization tends to disappear. So give it a shot. We're going to do three things today. One, we're going to talk about how we enter the Beatitudes. Secondly, we're going to talk about what in the world is a Beatitude. And thirdly, we're going to look at what the first two Beatitudes are saying to us. So the first thing is, how do we enter the Beatitudes? Well, we enter the Sermon on the Mount uh, through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then the Beatitudes. Now these verses, these opening verses, they, they form the foundation for the whole Sermon on the Mount. We read that Jesus went up on a mountain. Now, what's, what's being said here? On one hand, we can see Jesus going up to a very high place in order to give himself a better vantage point of the crowds. Uh, maybe his voice will project better from a higher place. Could be that. But I think there's a lot more going on than that. In fact, the early church fathers all picked up on the significance of the mount in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's being conveyed here, I think, is quite poignant. You see, a very significant event takes place on a mountain in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what mountain that is? I hear you. Sinai. Mount Sinai. What takes place on Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Um, on, the, on Mount Sinai, in, in the book of Exodus, we read about this, the Ten Commandments are given to us by Moses. And what are the Ten Commandments? Well, they are God's revelation of himself and his ways given to a newly constituted people of God. Now, in this passage, Jesus goes up on a mountain. And Jesus goes up as a new and better Moses. And, prevent, and presents the fulfillment of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting. And see, this is intentional. Um, if you look at the book of Matthew, and if you have an old school paper Bible, and if you have an old school Bible that actually has Jesus' teachings in red letters. Does anybody have a red letter Bible? You'll notice something interesting when you go through the book of Matthew. And you'll what you'll find is you'll find five chunks of red five sections of Jesus' teaching. Now, why does Matthew kind of organize it into five groups? It reflects the giving of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the, the, the law. And, 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 and what Matthew is teaching us is Jesus is so much greater than that. He is the fulfillment of the law. But it's, it's mirrored in the same way as the first five books of Moses. It's really interesting. And so in the first section, we're presented with the revelation of the lawgiver, Jesus Christ, to the people of God. Now, we also got to see this. In both cases, in Mount Sinai and in this, um, we don't just begin with law. We begin with what? Grace. In the, in the Ten Commandments, it, it begins not with law. It begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, 
out of the land of Egypt. And so it begins with God in his grace rescuing the people. And last week we talked about how Jesus, that we begin the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus' proclamation. Hey, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. It begins with grace. And then Jesus enters into what are called the Beatitudes. Now, what in the world is a Beatitude? Well, the word Beatitude, the key word is this word blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The word beatitude actually comes from the Latin word that means blessed. But what in the world does this mean? Now, lots of ink has been spilled over trying to figure out what this word in Greek is. The word is uh, makarios. This word we translate as blessed. What in the world does makarios mean? Some people say, well, what it means is, 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 is happy. You know, happy are the meek, or happy are, are the, uh, the poor in spirit. But I don't think that's a really good translation. Some translations do use happy. The problem with happy is that, it, one, it depends on me and how I'm feeling. And two, happy is related to the word happenstance. I just happen to be happy. And so it's all about me, and, and it's whether or not it happens. And, which is not the point of the Beatitudes. The point of the Beatitudes is that this is how God assesses us. It's not on how I happen to feel at any particular time. It's how God assesses us and our condition. And this is key. Because you may not feel happy. And yet God looks at you and says, you are still blessed. You're still blessed. So how should we translate this word? Well, some suggest we should use the word fortunate. Fortunate are the meek. Or congratulations. That's another one I've come across. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Um, there's this uh, Swiss theologian, a very famous guy from the 20th century, a guy named Karl Barth, heavyweight theologian. He suggests that we should translate Macarius as, you lucky bums. <laughs> now, I'm not sure about that one. Um, I think one of the best ways that we can translate it is this word, and even then it's not ideal, but I think it's okay, is the word... Um, or two words, in sync. Now, I, I, I never liked that band, but I think to be in sync, to be synchronized, to be in alignment with Jesus' teaching is what this is getting at. To be in sync. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. How do we respond? We repent, right? Repent means we stop going this way. We start walking towards Jesus. And we trust him. And we get in sync with the author of life, Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's dive in. What are these first two Beatitudes saying to us? Well, let's look at the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, right from the get-go, he's, he's, he's addressing a challenge that we experience in the Christian life. And here's the challenge. Many of us, when we look at the Bible and we read the Bible and we read the Ten Commandments, we read all the dis teaching of the Bible, and we're like, man, I could never do this. I look at all, this, all the stuff that, that goes into following Jesus, and man, I, I can't do this. I get it. If you're really religious and you're kind of into that kind of stuff, I get it. Maybe this would be for you. But for me, I just, I can't do this. 
I cannot do this. This Christian life is just really, really hard. And I know what Jesus is asking of me, but honestly, I cannot do this. Anyone ever feel this way? Yeah. I remember being at this one church in Toronto and it had banners on the wall and it said, you know, pray more, give more, do more. And I'm like, oh man, I'm just tired sitting here looking at this, you know. Uh, you know, okay, I guess I'll do more. You know, it's just, it's just it's exhausting. Well, okay, so we get some good news right from the first beatitude. If you feel this morning that you do not have what it takes to walk in the ways of Jesus, then you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. In fact, that's why the Beatitudes begin here. And this first Beatitude is key to understanding everything. It's, it's, in fact, it's key to understanding all that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. The reality is there is no one, no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. So what does being poor in spirit mean? Well, it's interesting. There are two words um, from what I've come across in this past, past week, studying this passage, there are two words that are usually translated poor. Um, and they, they have slightly different meanings. One of the words is this word, um, panes, and this word means poor. It means having nothing. It means having no property, no money. It means that you just have to really work hard just to survive. And some of you may be thinking, well, this is going to be easy. That describes me. I need to work hard just to survive. Uh, so you're saying I'm in. Oh, great. No, no, hang on. There's another word that's, that's, that's used to describe poor, that's translated poor. This is an interesting word. It's this word takoi. And what this word means, it means to be so destitute that you actually need to beg from others just to make it. Those in this condition have nothing, and they know it. They're so far down that the only way is up. And it's the second word, takoi, that's used in this beatitude. So to be poor in spirit means I got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I have empty hands, empty pockets. I have an empty self. I have no wallet, nothing of value, just open hands. I cannot offer anything in return for the basic needs of life. And if that's where you're at this morning, it's like, I got nothing. Jesus says, you lucky bum. No, he says, congratulations. Congratulations. You, you, you got nothing? Well done. You want to flourish? You want to enter into this new humanity? Well, that's the posture you need to bring. So the living God is in sync with those who have nothing and they know it. So that's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now some of you will know that in the book of Luke, there's, you, you come across some of these beatitudes as well. Do you know that? In, in the book of Luke, um, this teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, has a slight variation. What is it? Does anybody know? It says, blessed are, are the poor. It doesn't say poor in spirit. It, says, it just says, blessed are the poor. And so a lot of people wonder, so is there a difference? 
Uh, is, is, is Luke offering something different? Is, or does Matthew just spiritualize Luke's teaching? I don't think so. In fact, one of the things you see in the Bible is that, that God always cares about the poor. Um, God seems to have a preference for the little guy, for the poor, for those on the margins of society, for the powerless. You look at the story of Rahab, the story of Ruth, the many widows and the poor that show up through the Bible. God sees the poor, he loves them, he cares for them, and he helps them. And that's a theme that runs right through the Bible. But we have to get this. Nowhere in the Bible is being poor inherently a good thing. Nowhere is poverty the ideal human condition. And same with riches. Riches is not an ideal human condition. So why are the poor celebrated in the book of Luke? Well, I think it's what the poor know that the rich often don't know. And the poor know that they need help. They need help. They know that without God's help, they're in a heap of trouble. They have one hope and one hope only, and that is God. And I came across this this week when I was um, studying this passage. Um, and I got this insight from uh, Daryl Johnson, who's written a really interesting book on the Beatitudes. He's a pastor in, in Vancouver. And uh, he says, you know what? In the Bible, the opposite of poor is not rich. I thought it was. I thought poor and rich. But in the Bible, the opposite of poor is not rich. You know what the opposite of poor is? Is violent. The opposite of poor is violent. And at first, I'm like, how? How, is that? how does that make sense? But then I thought about it. It's true, though, because what do, what do the violent do? The violent take matters into their own hands, right? And it's strange. I don't look at my, my desire for control that way, but that's kind of what it is. Rather than trusting God, God, I have nothing. I bring nothing to the table. When I'm wanting control, I take control. I seize control. Um, I, when I want something to happen, I will take control to make sure it happens. Uh, when I need to be patient, to live well, to give space, instead, what I do is I take control. And you think about the different posture. When you're wanting control, you're like this. And the posture of being poor is this. So they're opposite. And so, the issue with the rich in the Bible is, is not the fact that they have lots of money. The issue is that they're so self-sufficient that they feel that they do not need God. Now, is that not the challenge of our modern world? This week, I'm going to be teaching an intensive at a, at a college in, uh, in, in Surrey. And the intensive that I'm teaching is called Engaging World Philosophies. I, I teach this every year. But what we look at is we look at the nature of the modern world, including technology and different things, and how everything in the modern world eclipses God. Everything in the modern world says, hey, I can do this. I can fix this. I can do this on my own. And yes, God may exist, sure, but he doesn't matter. He's good for an hour on Sunday, but for the rest of the real world, I got this. And so that's one of our challenges. And the problem with the, with the rich is that they think they can handle any problem that comes their way. This one author I once read, she says, uh, any, any problem that you can throw money at to, to solve is not a real problem. And the reality is that, is that you think you're fine until disaster strikes. You think you're fine until a flood hits and you're cut off from the rest of Canada, right? Or the stock markets fall. 
So the first question in the first beatitude to us this morning is this. Do you feel like you don't have it all together? <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations, because you see it. You recognize it. And so the first beatitude is all about recognizing our utter emptiness. We enter this beatitude when we hit rock bottom. Now, I remember hitting rock bottom in my life. And the only way out was up. <laughs> I remember praying, saying, God, if you're real, I'm in. I got nothing. All my attempts to instill meaning, all my attempts to, to make things work out were failing. And the only one direction was up. And one of the things that happened in my life is that, um, you know what I was freed of? When I said to God, I got nothing. I was freed of being God in my life. And do you know how freeing that is? Because truth be told, I make a lousy God. I'm not very good at being God. And so are you ready to admit you got nothing, that you need help? If that's where you're at, hey, Jesus says, congratulations, you're on your way. And then we lead, it leads us to the second beatitude. Second beatitude are blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this first beatitude, you know, blessed are the poor uh, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a little counterintuitive. The way down is the way up. The second beatitude is honestly a little bizarre. The actual translation should be, blessed are those who are in a constant state of mourning. Really? I mean, I can see the first one, but this second one, how does this make sense? How does it make sense? Happy are when you are sad. Happy are the sad. Alive are the dead. I mean, how does this make sense? Can you imagine going to a funeral? And then after the funeral, during the receiving line, you come up and you shake hands and you say, congratulations. Blessed are you in your grief. I mean, that would just be weird. You lucky bum. Now, what makes this even more perplexing is that, again, the word, the word mourn that's used here um, in the Greek, from my understanding, is one of the strongest words for grief. It's, it's a word used to describe the loss of a loved one or the deep pain that comes from deep within your soul. So Jesus says, congratulations to all who mourn. It doesn't make sense. Why is sorrow a sign of the kingdom? Why is this a quality of those for whom the kingdom of God has come? That's an important question, I think. And so, before we answer it, I just want to point out a couple of things about this, this, this beatitude. Just, just a couple of sides. A couple of things we need to notice. First, behind this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, behind this beatitude is a freedom to grieve. You know that? Now, we in the West, we need to hear this. Um, I need to hear this. Generally, in the West, we, I don't think we grieve that well. Uh, we're, we're told, we're told from a very young age, that to be strong, now it's beginning for a lot of men, 
To be strong means not to cry. Which is kind of weird because Jesus sure cried. Like the greatest man who ever, ever lived cried. Cried when his friend Lazarus died. Cried over, over Jerusalem. We, here we have the greatest man who ever lived who weeping over, openly in his grief. And yet for us, who's our model? Well, if you're older, it's John Wayne, or if you're younger, it's uh, John Wick. <laughs> Though I do know he cried for his dog. I get that, yes. Yes, he did cry for his dog. But this beatitude tells us it's okay to grieve. Secondly, um, you and I will really not know comfort until we grieve. And so we need to learn how to grieve. I've done, I've done hundreds of funerals. I think hundreds of funerals in my day, in my, in my uh, time as a pastor. And I remember, I remember, uh, I mean, some really tough ones too. But I remember what, what stood out when I was thinking about this this week were um, two funerals. One I did, this young man who committed suicide. And I've done quite a few funerals of, of suicides. And this one, this one young guy, he just struggled and he, and, he, um, and he killed himself. And I remember during the funeral, it was, it was really hard because the dad was sitting right there. And during the whole funeral, his son's just died. The whole funeral, he's like this. He was mad. Did not shed a tear. He was just angry. So mad that his son would do this. And then recently I did, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I did a, another funeral for someone who had committed suicide. And the family was just, and, and the congregation, everybody was, was weeping. And I think there's a big difference there. There was, there, was, there, was, there was a study, actually. There's a study, and it describes those who journey through grief. And it says those who journey through grief the best are those who do not stuff down the grief. And so it was a study done out of, the, out of UCLA, and it compared the rates of depression um, within the Middle East compared to the rates of depression in the West. And if you know, in the Middle East, um, when, when one experiences grief, they're a lot more expressive in expressing their grief. Well, the rates of depression are way higher in the West than they were in the Middle East. Because grief will not kill you. Stuffing grief will do a number on you. The other thing that comes out in, in this passage is that the Christian life is not all roses and sunshine. Right? Now, we know that, but part of the problem is sometimes as Christians, we feel like, oh, I ought to be joyful. And we do experience joy. And don't get me wrong, the Christian life is full of joy. But there's also sorrow. Right? There's also grief. And so... As a Christian, there, there's no point coming into the church. You know, you're, you're feeling heavy. And then the moment you walk through the doors, it's like, hi, glory to God. Isn't God good? There's a Chinese expression, and it says, pi xiao, ro bu xiao, which means your skin is smiling, but the muscle is not. And so when you're, hi. And we have these plastic smiles, like everything's, everything's got to be smiley. And that's just nonsense. There are days where you, we just do not feel like smiling, where there's heavy stuff going on. So, back to our framing question. Why is sorrow 
a sign of the kingdom? Well, I'm going to lay out two reasons. Though if you come on Tuesday, we'll probably talk about a few more reasons than just two, but uh, just pointing that out. Uh, Two reasons. First reason is this. When we meet Jesus, we come to see the sin in our own lives. When we encounter Jesus, at the very same time, we encounter our hearts. Now, for the record, Jesus does not come up to me and say, hey, sinner! He doesn't. I don't see him anywhere in Scripture doing that, actually. But when I encounter the goodness of Jesus, his holiness, his grace, his love, when I encounter what Jesus did for me on the cross, something happens. And what happens is I start to realize how deeply I fall short in all this. And I begin to look at my own life. And I begin to look at my own heart. Uh, And I begin to see what Jesus is calling me to be, the life that he's inviting me into. And I see how uh, my heart resists this. And I mourn that. I begin to mourn the sin of my own life. I begin to mourn when I actually think about this. Think about this. uh, I begin to mourn my thought life. See, it's one hand. I mean, we can we can fake being a Christian pretty good. You can fake it, but it's the stuff that goes on here. Oh man. And when I think about my thought life and where my mind goes, where it shouldn't go. And then I look at the goodness of Jesus. I'm like, man, this is not good. This is not good. I feel like Paul in, in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, hey, the things I do, I shouldn't be doing. Things that I don't do, I ought to be doing. And he just finally yells out, he goes, who's going to help this wretched man? <laughs> right? And one of my favorite figures in, in, in church history, some of you know this, um, one of my favorite figures is a fellow named John Newton. John Newton lived in the 1700s, and I've spent probably way too much of my time reading John Newton, studying John. I really like John Newton, and I talked about him last, uh, last Tuesday. Um, Newton writes something really interesting about the Christian life. He writes this letter on how we grow as Christians, and, and, and what he says is this. He says, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we turn around and I'll try to get in sync with him, the more we have a sense of our sins. Now, it's interesting, in Newton's own life, if you know his story, Newton spent much of his days as a captain on a slave ship in the 1700s. And Newton, he was, you know, he just lived his life, um, just a really rough life as a sailor, uh, incredible life. Um, And then everything changes, everything changes, or begins to change, when he enters, uh, he encounters this tremendous storm just off the coast of Ireland. And in that storm, he almost dies. And, and his life begins to change. He, he actually cries out to Jesus. And Newton, he, shortly after that, he left the slave trade. And he wrote in his journals, he wrote in his journals, just, you know, I'm not so sure about the slave trade. I think it's wrong, right? But the older he got that sense of his sin and what he had done in the slave trade became more and more pronounced in his heart to the point where he actually wrote a key uh, testimony uh, for William Wilberforce that was used in Parliament that brought about the end of the slave trade. 
um, in, um, in 1807. And so for Newton, it's interesting because the older he gets, the more he sees just how sinful his heart was, how sinful his heart is, to the point that on his deathbed, he's, he's quoted his saying to his friend. He says, you know what? My life is nearly at the end. And he says, two things I know. Two things I know. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And I think about my own life. When, when I became a Christian, if you ask me what kind of sense of sin did I have, what kind of sense did I have in my heart, I, I really, I had a sense that I longed for meaning and I wanted meaning in this life, but I really had no idea just how, how wrecked my heart was. The longer I've walked with Jesus, the more I look at my heart going, oh man. Sin runs so deep within my heart. It runs way, way deep in creative ways in my heart. But the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I'm, I just see the power of the cross. Yes, I am a great sinner. But Jesus is, wow, he is one great savior. And we live in that posture. And I think that's a picture of blessed are those who mourn. We see this actually in Paul. In the New Testament, Paul, when he, early on in his, after he gives his life to Jesus, he says, you know what, out of all the apostles, I'm the least of all apostles. Then later on he says, I'm the least of all saints. And at the, in his dying days, when he's an old man, what does he say? I'm the chief of all sinners. And so there's this progress. The more we see ourselves and our sin, the more we'll desire to continually turn and get in sync with Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. But there's one other thing. As we trust in Jesus, as we live in sync with him, when we see the world as it could be, but when we see, what will happen is we'll see the world as it could be, but also as it truly is. And there's great joy in the Christian life. But when we look at our world, our hearts will begin to sink. Because we'll look at the world and we'll say, you know what, this is what could be. The world doesn't have to spend $2 million a minute on arms. The world doesn't have to destroy the environment. It doesn't have to be this way. So we can see what is possible, but then our hearts will mourn because it's not that way. And here's the thing. Every one of us, there'll be something in particular that will make you weep and pound the table. So let me ask you this. What is the thing that when you see it in this world, it, it really bothers you and it makes you weep and pound the table? I'll tell you what it is for me. When I see young people trying to figure out life and looking for life in all the wrong places and it's killing them and going down paths and going down ways that I know are dead ends and it's going to kill them and I see young people who are overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, my heart cries out, it doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't have to be this way. And my heart breaks. And here's the thing. Where your heart breaks, think about it. Where you, your heart breaks, what makes you weep? Where your heart breaks and where your gifts are, at that point of intersection, there is God's call in your life. Think about that. 
where your heart breaks and where you are gifted, where those two things intersect, that's God's call in your life. So think about that. When we see the world and we find ourselves pounding the table and weeping, you're seeing the world as it could be, but also as it is. And as we mourn, this mourning is a sign that we are in sync with the kingdom. And then Jesus says this last thing, for you will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. When? When, Jesus? When will I be comforted? At the very end of the age, when there's no more tears, no more sickness, no more death? Yes. There will be comforting. But we will also be comforted before the end. How? Well, this is interesting because this word comfort that we come across in this passage is an interesting word that's used. And I just, just, I'm, I'm just learning. I'm, I'm like one week ahead of you guys, but I just learned what this word was. And the word is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Think about that. And the word is translated comfort is parakaleo, which actually is not so much about consoling. What parakaleo, what the word means, is to encourage to spur you on when you're feeling like you can't keep going. It's actually a word that's used to describe encouragement that soldiers would give to each other on a battlefield. Right? So it's a robust word. To be comforted is to, is to be spurred on when you can't keep going. And you think about, even the English word is like that, comfort, comes from the, uh, from the word um, comfortare, which means calm, which means with, and forte, which means strength. It means strengthened by being with. When we open our hearts up to grief, our hearts will be strengthened. How? Well, think about this word, parakaleo. Does that, any Greek nerds here? Uh, what does that sound like? Paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And so before the end, before every tear is wiped away, in the meantime, in our day-to-day life, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, who lives within all those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, he will meet us in our grief and bring us comfort. He will, he will remind us when we're looking at our, the sinfulness of our hearts, hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the cross, you're an adopted son, or daughter of the Most High, and nothing can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ, and you can boldly approach the throne of grace. So yeah, there's stuff in your heart, but you need to know that Christ is a great Savior, right? And when we look at our world and our hearts are breaking, we know that because of Jesus, because of the resurrection, in the end, all shall be well, and God will make all things right. So these are the first two Beatitudes, and I know we covered a lot, but I think they're actually connected to each other. Thankfully. And the first one, we're called to be open to God. I got nothing. I need to be open to you, God. The second, we need to be open to our sins and the needs of this world. And so my prayer is, may the things that break the heart of Jesus begin to break ours. May you and I be more and more in sync with the heart of Jesus. And I always remember, and some of you may not remember this, but I always loved um, Pastor Mark. He was our former senior pastor 
when he would preach, he would, like, I'm more of a robot. I, you know, it's hard for me to get any water in my eyes. But um, Mark, he would just be overwhelmed by things, by the state of the world, the state of his heart, the, the glory of God. And he would openly weep when he's preaching. And I know Mark would always say to me, oh, I hate when that happens. I'm like, Mark, I love it when that happens. I love it when that happens because you're human and you're showing us the very heart of Jesus in this. This is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. May you and I be more and more in sync with the heart of Jesus. Is that your desire? All right. Well, let's speak to Jesus about this. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you recognizing we got nothing. (laughs) We come before you recognizing that we are empty. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing. And you say, congratulations. Welcome. Because when we have nothing, we're in sync with the kingdom of heaven. Because we have nothing that we bring to the table. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to thy cross we cling. And so we come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. And Lord, we do pray that the things of this world, the the things in our heart would, would make us mourn and the things in this world would also affect our hearts. But knowing that we will be comforted because of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the giving of the empowering, your empowering presence, we know that we do not have to go through life alone, but you will strengthen us, empower us to carry on. And so, Lord, may the things that break your heart break ours. And may the gifts that you give us intersect with where our hearts are broken and may we live out your calling for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.